6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3. Well, we're going to complete our review of the epistles of Peter. And as we go into the Word of God, we always want to do it with prayer. So let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this privilege that you've extended to us. We thank you for the availability of your Word to each of us. We thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit. We do pray, Father, that through your Spirit, you would help us to apply these insights to our lives. That we each, as Peter encourages us, to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, in whose name we commit this time and ourselves. Amen. Well, we're in 2 Peter chapter 3, and it's interesting that there are two books that are very, very parallel, 2 Peter and 2 Timothy. In both cases, they're the swan song of the author. Uh, this is when Peter wrote his second letter, he knew he was facing death. Paul, when he wrote his second letter to his protege, Timothy, he also knew that he was facing death. So there's, in that sense, a certain similarity. They're both swan songs of his heart. And so both epistles put up a warning sign of the apostasy that was, going, that was on the way at that time. Paul was warning Timothy of the apostasy that he should expect in the churches. And that's exactly what Peter is going to conclude here. And what's interesting, this is also a sign of our times. You know, everybody does these prophecy summaries about what's going on in the Middle East or this or that. One of the most conspicuous signs of our time is the apostasy of the church itself. How many pulpits in our own country fail to declare the redemption of Jesus Christ, His shed blood? I talk about a lot of other interesting things, but that seems to take a, a, it's number 11 on the list of 10 somehow. So they're both facing death. And it's interesting, they both speak in a joyful manner of their approaching deaths. It, uh, uh, Paul knew the same, that his time of departure had come because he'd finished his course. He'd been on the, what he seems to portray as the racetrack of life. And now he's leaving it. He fought a good fight. He kept the faith. Those are all echoes, of course, of his epistles. A crown of righteousness was laid up for him. Paul was excited for me to part and be with Christ is far better, and so forth. And uh, you're going to find the same triumphant note here in Second uh, Peter, as he also faces the prospect of death. Now, the major divisions of Second Peter 3, three parts— his attitude toward the return of the Lord as a test of the apostates. Interesting yardstick. We're going to maybe discover some different perspectives from that passage. The agenda of God for the world is going to be laid out. You want to talk about global warming? We've got global warming laid out by Peter quite clearly. 
And then, of course, it closes with an admonition to all believers. If you're not a believer, don't worry about it. You can leave now if you like. But if you're a believer, there's some specific admonitions for you here. So let's just jump in. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. I now. The word now, or already, implies that the interval between these two letters was not very long. We went through 1 Peter. 2 Peter followed fairly closely on the heels of that, it turns out. And I stir up your pure minds. The word in the Greek is actually um, means found pure when unfolded and examined in the sun's light, is what the term is really used. The word sincere is probably a better translation. I stir up your sincere minds by way of remembrance. Way of remembrance. Preparing to depart, Peter encourages them to keep hold of what you have. The Word of God. Keep that in remembrance. And by the way, you can find admonitions all through the Bible to memorize. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Scripture memory is something in which it, that, that can bear fruit. It can be overdone if that's all you're doing. Don't misunderstand me. But um, there is a value in Scripture memory. And that's one of the reasons so many of us tend to cling to the classical King James. Yes, there are some modern translations that render this or that a little clearer maybe, but they keep getting replaced by better modern translations. And I'm on the review board for the International Standard Version. It's in, and as it gets finished, it's going to be tremendous in many ways. But I still do my memory work in King James. Why? Because of its majesty? Yes. But also, I know it's going to be around 20 years from now. And so, that's a, a subtlety, perhaps. Remembrance. That's been a key theme in this letter to add to your memory verses. Uh, that's that's a, a style, a tradition, a commitment that many people may, may, may not, in, uh, you know, they, they abandon it in our wor modern world. But it's a good idea to have a collection of verses that you, can, that you have command of, that are in your heart. Second verse, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Interesting how he puts himself. Us, the apostles. He teaches them that he, he includes himself with Paul. We're going to discover before this chapter is over that Peter is going to authenticate Paul in a very interesting way. And that's going to be, I think, important to us. You know, there are many people, many Christians get very enamored with the Old Testament and the Messianics. And they, they discover the Old Testament. And that's great. But as they do, they run the risk of starting to put themselves under the law. And you'll discover, if you fellowship with the Messianic believers a lot, you'll discover they tend to be a little uncomfortable with Paul. And, uh, and uh, I think it's interesting, none of them are uncomfortable with Peter, and Peter authenticates Paul. So we'll see that as we get in further in his letter. Now, Paul was committed to the uncircumcision, that is the Gentiles, Peter to the circumcision. They divided up their ministries. Clearly, Peter was called to the Jewish believers. And Paul, even though he had a heart for his countrymen, being Jewish, he realized he was called to the uncircumcision, to the Gentiles. That's one of the reasons that he doesn't sign his... 14, he did 14 epistles. 13 of them he signed. There's one he did not sign because he knew if he signed it, it would foreclose much of his readers. 
They knew who wrote it, but he didn't sign it. And it's like an amicus brief in today's courts. There's a concept in our courts of law that you can be a friend of the court, amicus curiae, where you, you, you might have some knowledge or background that's useful to the court. You're not a party in interest to either of the disputants, but you can be a friend of the court by filing an amicus brief in which you provide something can be helpful uh, without taking you know, uh, the part of either side. And uh, that's sort of what the Epistle of Hebrews is, because it's written to the Jewish believer, but he didn't dare sign it as an apostle because that would be super arrogation, because Paul regarded the apostle to the Jews as Jesus himself, and he wouldn't step into those shoes. So as you study the Epistle of the Hebrews, there's a lot you'll learn uh, about Paul by it. It's very interesting. But anyway, Paul is to the Gentiles, Peter to the Jews, and they both make that point in their letters. But Peter continues, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts. When? In the last days. And so, has the last days started? Absolutely. We believe we're in the last days for many reasons, but one of the key reasons that we know we're in the last days is we have our horizon littered with scoffers, people who claim to be in the ministry that uh, are false teachers. And uh, so, and why are we surprised of that today? Both Paul and Peter hammered this in their letters. This very disparagement is a sign of our times, the fact that there are people in pulpits disparaging the Word of God. Scoffers. These were the apostates that dealt with in the previous chapter. We had a whole chapter, chapter 2 of Second Peter, was re-aimed at the scoffers. Well, he's bringing them up again here. And these are members of churches. We're not talking about, you know, the pagan extremists that are not believers, clearly. We're not talking about those. We're talking about people who masquerade as believers. They're members of churches. And uh, some of them are pastors. But according to this, they're walking after their own lusts. They're victims of heart trouble. Their hearts are not in the right place. Hearts are in the world. The hearts are after growing their ministry. And uh, anyway, these scoffers are saying, where is the promise of his coming? In other words, they're disparaging this whole focus on the second coming. You hear a lot of pastors sort of express concern to their congregation. They're getting too wrapped up in prophecy, end times. And they dwell on the fact that, gee, there's many different theories about this or that and so on. And they say, where is the promise of his coming? They just doubt the idea that uh, Jesus promised to return. And there's a lot said about it. There's over 1,800 references in the Bible to him coming and ruling on the earth. But they're saying, where is the promise of his coming? And notice the premise that they attach to that skepticism of the second coming. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. How interesting it is that they continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. See, not only is the return of Christ questioned, even from pulpits, but what they advocate is uniformitism, a form of evolution. It's interesting that they link the skepticism about the second coming with their commitment to evolution. Evolution in the sense of, of all things continue, since they were. See, both thoughts, the second coming and the creation, imply that God intervenes in human history. 
And they like to take the view that God doesn't do that. Their concept of God excludes the idea that he actually intervenes in history. And so he's, Peter's going to use examples where God has dramatically intervened in history as his rebuttal to this. So Peter's really raising the question here, is there really a God who intervenes in history? And that's the issue here. See, both the beginning, the creation, and the end are linked. Now, what's interesting, we are the beneficiaries of 20th century science. And that 20th century science has made two disco several discoveries, one of which is that the universe is not infinite. It had a beginning. That's what leads to these conjectures called the Big Bang. They know it had a beginning. They called it a singularity. Prior to that, there was nothing, and then we have the creation. And uh, it's interesting, those same scientists will tell you that from thermodynamics, they know not only did it have a beginning, it's going to have an ending. They call it the heat death. Because every uh, transfer of energy, matter and energy, involves some losses. There's no 100% efficiency. And some of that loss goes to the ambient. So as life goes on, it's like the whole universe is wound up and it's winding down. There's a point at which, see, every piece of work in the, in, in the universe is based on a temperature difference. And when that temperature difference results in some work, some of it's lost. So the day comes where there is no temperature differences, where there's uniform, uniform uh, uh, thermodynamics. There, no more work can be done. So they call it. They, they know that the universe ultimately is heading for a heat death, and that's maybe billions and billions and billions of years or whatever in their minds. But still, it had a beginning and it has an end. That is the the view of any informed scientist. Quite apart from. Uh, the benefit we have from the scripture. The Lord himself, by the way, revealed that he would be coming for his own in the upper room. John 14, he, he emphasizes that. And he is preparing a place for us. And we're going to meet him in the air, Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4. This is all basic stuff, but let's keep it in front of us here. And he then will set up his kingdom on the earth. It's interesting how that's so expressly laid out in the Old Testament and the New, and yet you'll find it largely absent in most Christian teachings. You find that uh, all the way through. Gabriel committed that to Mary when she, uh, he announced the birth of her child would sit on the throne of David. In the book of Acts, when he gets ready for resurrection, they ask him, are you going to set up the kingdom now? He says, no, you're not supposed to know the timing. Doesn't say he's not going to do it. He just quarreled that they, the, the timing is not their business. And the pivotal event of the book of Acts, in Acts 15, is the Council of Jerusalem, where James himself quotes Amos 9 from the Old Testament, all these things. So now Peter is going to cite the Old Testament with examples to prove that God does intervene in history. And that's the, that's the, he's going to cite rebuttals to that very premise. The first of that first of the ones he alludes to is a flood. Now the question that lurks here, by the way, I don't want to make a big thing of it, but I want you to be aware of the fact, there's some difference of opinion as to which flood we're talking about. Uh, we obviously can take the safe ground by assuming he's talking about the flood of Noah, because I think he is, but not necessarily. I was quite surprised to discover some very prominent Bible teachers suggest the possibility it's not the flood of Noah. It could be the original judgment in the so-called gap between Genesis, the first two verses of the book of Genesis. 
And I was quite surprised to find that J. Vernon McGee privately holds that view, that it probably is an allusion to the gap theory. I didn't even know he was a gap theorist because uh, the, uh, there are a lot of very good scholars that uh, you know, are a little uncomfortable with the gap theory. So the safe ground is to assume he's talking about the flood of Noah, Genesis 6 through 9. But let's go see what he says here. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. What's that referring to? Could be either one, by the way. Because we encounter the, the earth in the second verse of Genesis, but the earth had become. We'll get into that here in a minute. The willingly. Ignorance here, though, is a response to the will. And that's what Romans 1 teaches us that, you're, that uh, ignorance is willful. It's willful. And it's a decision. It's not a lack of information. And uh, it's important for us to understand that. If you have any doubts about that, I encourage you to read Romans chapter 1 very carefully. And if you, in, in the antediluvians, the people that were with Noah before the flood, they wanted God to depart. We get that insight from Job and elsewhere. And that's the way it is today. They really don't want God around, Okay. The pagan world would like to get the Christians out of their hair, and God is going to give them exactly what they want when the time comes, interestingly enough. But, uh, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. You know, Psalm 136.6 says, um, the sixth verse of that says, He stretched out the earth above the waters. That's interesting. Interesting phrase in the Psalms. Psalm 24 Verse 2, he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. We have a very, very different, uh, you know, uh, uh, cosmology here implied in the Scripture. But Peter goes on, verse 6 and 7, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Okay, the, the world that then was, he's dealing with here. And um, so this certainly could refer to the flood of Noah. It might refer to some other things. There was a universal flood in the time of Noah. Now, by the way, let me underscore that. The Bible clearly indicates that flood was worldwide. There are people who say, well, it was just a local flood. If that's true, God didn't keep his promise. If the flood of Noah was just a small region... God promised he would never do that again. Well, there's been lots of local floods, in regional floods. So if the flood of Noah was local, God didn't keep his promise. No, no, no. The flood of Noah was universal, and that's what God promised he would never do again. There are many scholars, and I tend to lean this way myself, that believe the flood of Noah was the second flood. <clears throat> there was a flood that we, are, we pick up the story in the second verse of Genesis. The gap theory. This will be old news for most of you, but just to put this in perspective, <coughs> there are some basic issues that hide behind this. When were the angels created? Long before the earth. We learned that from Job. When did Satan fall? He's an angel that fell. Very powerful. He's in charge of everyone. He fell. When? He was already fallen by Genesis 3. And so, is there a gap between the first two verses of Genesis? It seems to be suggested several places throughout the Bible, and it's our conjecture that that was a judgment that was associated with Satan's fall earlier than the second verse of Genesis. Let's take a look at what it says in the first few verses of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, period. 
No, no contest. If you understand that verse, every other verse in the Bible will yield to you. But, and, and then your King James says, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved or brooded among the face of the, upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let light be. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. The evening and the morning were day one. Strange order. The evening, Erev and Boker. The evening and the morning were day one. But it's the second verse that causes some attention because it reads in your King James in the English, and the earth was without form and void. Well, when you get to Isaiah, God has a passage there, chapters 44 and 45, that are incredible. But in verse 18 of chapter 45, God says something very strange. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it. He created it not in vain. Same word that's used in Genesis chapter 2. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. He created it not in vain. The tohu, same word, without form, confused. You see, the way we have it in our Genesis thing, in the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The word was there turns out to be a transitive verb, a verb requiring action. And it, so, haya, it had be, it, it's in the past perfect form here, had become, and the earth had become. It was not that way originally, it had become without form and void. And it's the same verb that's used in Genesis 19 when Lot's wife became a pillar of salt. Same word. In other words, it's a, it's a verb of action. Okay. Became without form. And that's, of course, tohu vabohu. Uh, tohu, the same word that's used in Isaiah. And void, tohu vabohu. Now, the word and there is a vav, which is a conjunction. But it's interesting that that conjunction is adversative and is so rendered in both the Septuagint and also in the Latin Vulgate. It's adversative. In other words, it should be translated not and, but the earth. See, there's an adversative aspect to it. And it's so used in a number of passages. That term also, by the way, often is used in the Hebrew to represent a significant time delay. An eight-year period in Exodus, a 38-year period in Deuteronomy, a seven-year period in First Chronicles, 58 years. The term, and it's but, it implies a delay. But in any case, so this could be translated more properly, but the earth had become without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And if that's the case, then that sort of gives us a hint that something transpired between the first two verses. And uh, as we look through all of this, uh, we find those, those terms, uh, tohu vabohu, in several passages in Isaiah and also Jeremiah. We'll look at one in a little bit later. And darkness is upon the face of the deep, and that's choshik. It's, an un, it's a word for an unnatural darkness. And the deep, of course, at tohum, it is the, in the Greek, it's the abuso or the abyss. Apparently the home of demons and evil spirits and what have you. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. So here we have this idea that there was an interval, a substantial interval, between the first two verses is originally apparently suggested by Thomas Chalmers in 1814. And you can compare a number of scholars that have really gotten into this. Uh, George H. Pember, Earth's Earliest Ages, is a classic back in 1907. Donald Gray Barnhouse, a highly venerated conservative scholar, and his did a whole book called The Invisible War that I commend to you. Arthur Custance, Without Form and Void, he gets into this. These are the classic references uh, in the so-called gap theory.
But if you look at Jeremiah, let's get back to the Word of God. In Jeremiah chapter 4, there's a little passage there that describes the earth in a way that's hard to fit into our knowledge of history. Jeremiah says, I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void. Oh, really? And the heavens, and they had no light. That sounds like what we're talking about, doesn't it? I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. And I beheld, and lo, there was no man. And all the birds of the heavens were fled. It was without form and void. And uh, again, that same term that we find in the, uh, uh, Genesis verse 2. But it continues, I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness. And all the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of the Lord, and by his fierce anger. And thus hath the Lord said, The whole land shall be desolate, yet I will not make a full end. I wonder why. Because there's more to come. And God was going to recreate it and give Adam uh, a role in his redemption. I do understand they've made some, there's some evidence of a pre-existent civilization even way earlier than Sodom and Gomorrah as they did now, but I haven't had all that confirmed, so I'll let it go. We'll go on here. Let's get back to Peter. Now, he could be referring to that as the first flood. It's possible. Uh, J. Vernon McGee leans that way, but he really presents it more in a safer way, so to speak. Whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished, and the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. You and I experience a creation that has had some adjustments to it. And let, setting aside the gap theory, let me get into that. The, the, the heavens and the earth, which are now, let's talk about this. We're in a second world that we're living in, subject to a form of global warming that's going to come up here in a minute. But as we studied Genesis, you may recall that we made a map of entropy uh, throughout the from the beginning on. Entropy is randomness, and randomness is maximum at the bottom and minimum at the top. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 2 Peter. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.